listening to the Central Station Podcast, where we bring you true stories of what life in the outback is really like and why many wouldn't live anywhere else. So pull up a stump, pop the billy on, or crack a cold one as we talk to the men and women who call some of the most remote parts of Australia home. This episode is part two of our chat with Wayne Bean. If you haven't listened to part one, you know the drill. Go on, go back and listen to it first. In this episode, Wayne recalls the 18 years he spent working for Hatesbury Pastoral, where he progressed from an overseer on the Barclay to junior manager in the Victoria River District, and finally, his goal of senior manager in the Kimberley. Throughout those years, he saw the end of BTEC, gained his pilot's licence, and had a front row seat to the positive changes the Hatesbury pastoral boss, Janet Holmes Accord, put in place. Not least of all, the introduction of paid positions for managers' wives. To start our episode, I asked Wayne how he came to work for Hatesbury. Well, Monogeny was owned by the Desert Cattle Company and they owned three places. So I wasn't, you know, it was pretty tough to sort of grow there as a manager or into an overseer at least. And the managers at Monogeny had left and gone with the new company, uh, Haysbury, that had just taken over the the Sherwin uh, deal, um, which was quite huge, like 26 properties Australia-wide and and he just moved to Eva, which I'll, you know, uh, running Mungabroom and Beedaloo from. So he's rung me up and offered me the job as the overseer there. So it was a promotion. I mean, it was more money. And more importantly, it was it was with a fairly big progressive company. It's where I was headed. So it was, it was a step forward. It was a step up. So we moved over to Eva Downs. How big do you think that was? Between, I guess, whether it's in acres or number of head of cattle in that aggregation? Oh, I don't know. I do know back then, um, Beedaloo was the, it was the biggest unfenced pastoral lease in the Northern Territory. Bigger than anything they had on Brunette Downs, which Brunette Downs had a pretty big wow factor for some size of paddocks, but it was massive. Very few internal fences. Uh, it was just a massive lease, a lot of bullwaddy scrub and, Big clean-up job, actually. Mm. It's funny that you say Beedaloo was the biggest one, the biggest pastoral lease that was, you know, unfenced because it's quite the opposite today, isn't it? Isn't it, like, You're quite ex- intensively fenced? Exactly right. It'd be the most intensively fenced property in the Northern Territory today, yeah. or pastoral lease anyway. It's gone from one extreme to the other. Yeah, you'd never have thought that back then, dead right. And so not only are you continuing on this trajectory of of trying to, you know, progress your career it's also within a fairly short period of time because this is the early 90s you first came up to the territory in the mid 80s so within six or seven years you've gone from being a ringer at MacArthur River Station a very young headstockman in Queensland then what were you headstockman in Channel Country as well is that what the role was? Uh, it was sort of like a headstockman's job they you know the culture down there is a bit different uh, they call them the married man <laughs> Really? Um, yeah, even though you were given responsibilities similar to a head stockman, but it was just their culture back then and that what, day. What if, you weren't, what if you weren't married? Could you still have a married man's I position? 
don't know. It's just the type of vocabulary <laughs> they used back then. Yeah. And then you've come up to Monogini, uh, head stockman and now overseer. But I'm just thinking like, what a change. You know, yes, you're, you're getting new roles and responsibilities, but a huge, like way more country and cattle to be responsible for. What was that like? Yeah, a little bit daunting, but exciting. You know, it kept you. Uh, looking forward, um, it's just like getting a new car and playing with the, all the features of it and the toys until you get to know it. So it was just like you've got this new place and it's huge, it's massive, and you just want to get out there and find out where every fence and water hole is and, you know, really get to know it. So it really gets you out of bed in the morning, gets you home late in the beginning. And it's, yeah, it's just one big adventure, you know, going to a new place, especially when you've got a, fairly free reign you know the the bosses i had then you know they'd just tell you what they want and you just went and did it mm. and you mentioned that when you came back to the territory it was still in the thicker btec this is you know only a few years later and btec went on for a long time so what did that look like on a property of that scale uh quite dawning especially the likes of Eva had been fairly well managed to a point, but Mungabroom and Beedaloo hadn't been mustered for two years. So there's a lot of big clean skin cattle there and, um, you know, that really added to the time to try and clean it up. We'd have to take out a lot of portable yards into areas where we couldn't shift cattle out of. And, yeah, it was pretty pretty tough going, uh, getting through that first round, getting those paddocks cleaned up. You know, a lot of them had to be shot out. Um, too much scrub, too much turpentine, too much water around, you know, couldn't trap them. So, yeah, it, BTEC was still well underway back in the early 90s. When you're having to shoot the cattle out of those paddocks, is that the same as what you spoke about in your other episode with a stock agent or a stock inspector up in the sky doing it or do you also do it from the ground as well? No, um, it's, it's got to be signed off by the stock inspector. And, uh, I, you know, one instance that really stands to mind there was at Beetaloo and was uh, late in the end of the year. And cause uh, it's such a big place, it took us a while to get up there and clean it up. We'd done a rough first round and then we had to clean it up because we're, we're told they're coming in to shoot it if we don't. So we got up there and we did what we could and then, um, the, the uh, stock inspector went out one afternoon and um, he might have shot about a dozen head and he had come back that night and camped with the pilot and um, the old caretaker fellow that's been there for years, Andre Moncton at Beetaloo, um, he's very attached to the place. He was still there, uh, living there when we were mustering there and we got two inches of rain that night. And he said to the stock inspector, he said, if there's any cattle left in that paddock you've been in shooting today, he said, they'll be all on the only red ridge. And uh, I remember the stock, he doing a check over it on his way home back to Elliot and he shot 127 head of cattle on that red ridge, you know. Wow. Because they hate being on black soil when yeah. it rains. Yeah. So the old fella knew what he was talking about. Yeah. That actually reminds me of um, someone – talking about some phosphorus work they did, I want to say, at Helen Springs, which is not that far down the road, I guess, sort of same general area, and talking about the yeah, cattle where you'd be able to find them um, and, and when you'd need to uh, supplement them because of where they'd go in those paddocks that had those different soil types. That's right. No, I've seen that over the years too. They um, they just go to it like beasts of the honey. They just lick the banks out 
chasing whatever they're chasing and often it's phosphorus. Did it ever get disheartening, especially because you've had that break away from BTEC when you've come back to Queensland, that you're in this industry to try and to breed cattle to, you know, to kind of start the cycle of life to, to and then you're just seeing so many of them destroyed? Yeah, it was. It was daunting at the time, you know, and you think, is this ever going to end? Are they ever going to clean? It's like trying to put out a wildfire, you know, it just keeps spreading. And But looking back now, you know, because it went on some eight, nine years after I was at EVA, still, you know, doing monitoring testing and movement testing and, and uh, you know, looking back, it, it had to happen. You know, our industry, our cattle industry, we wouldn't have the markets uh, share in the world globally that we have now and um, so it really had to happen as much as a lot of people say it shouldn't have happened but it's cleaned up our herd it's given us a, a great disease free status and it's been like that way for you know 30 years since it was over. Did you ever feel pressure I'm just trying to think if I was in that situation knowing that if you whatever animals you don't muster out of that paddock, and let's be honest, given the type of country that you're describing and the fact that you know that you had clean skins in there, if cattle are left behind, it's not really anybody's fault. But whatever you don't get out is basically got a death sentence, whether or not it has TB. So, did you ever feel pressure that you know, like I've got to try and get everything out, and otherwise you could just be wasting perfectly good animals? Yeah, I did, and, and, and did. It's a good question because it really did get to me at the end, and I, I remember the second year there um i got to know the stock inspector really well and i pleaded with him that we'd we'd trap some cattle ourselves um on this ball might be three or four hundred and i wanted to walk them back to a set of yards um so that we could test them up and um you know just trying to do your thing as a head stockman uh, an overseer at the time and and he said right oh he said you got two days to handle them and I think it was like a 17k walk back to the city yards. He said, I'll be there waiting in a gunship. If anything leaves your mob, he said, it's gone. Well, yeah, I, I think he shot over half of them because even though we'd handled them well, when we left the cooler that they were in, the big cable cooler, uh, it was just wall to wall of turpentine. It was very hard to control. So we lost over half of them to him. You know, like uh, as we're galloping out after him, he's virtually shooting them under us. Oh, that's yeah, yeah. And he, that was his job; he had to do yeah. it. Yeah, but it was good of him to give give us a chance. Yeah, and we've got half of them. Yeah, and you know, <laughs> half is better than none. So, yeah. you know. and like they all could have been free of TB, and they probably would have been. Yeah, but the rules are the rules. rules yeah, mm-hmm. we've had someone else on this podcast who is actually also based at Eva and mentioned, you know, talked about that during the TV time. So I'm wondering if you were living there at the same time, Danny Hayes? Yes, absolutely. Um, we both started the same year there pretty much together. Really? Yes. So have you got any stories about him you can tell us? Oh, Danny's a colourful character, very accomplished person for his age, I felt back then. He was very passionate about helicopters at that point. He hadn't long started. He might have been going 12, 18 months was working with Helimuster and, you know, we'd catch up if we got in before dark sometimes, you know, at the office. I remember the, the manager was away one day and the phone rang and had a big bell on it and we we're sitting out the front having a beer, Danny Hayes and his good co-pilot friend, Ashley Dixon. I went and answered the phone and it was uh, uh, Danny's boss from Helimuster, uh, John Waymouth. 
and uh, he said he needed to speak to Danny, and the the phone was on speaker, and uh, he because Danny had been a bit naughty and smashed a few machines up. <laughs> And it might have been the year when Helly must have decided to not insure any machines and 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 then they could afford to lose two and it'd still be cheaper than paying insurance. And I think at that stage Danny had smashed three. <laughs> and uh, I remember John Waymouth, because he used to stutter, and he said, Danny, he said, it'd be a lot cheaper if you were dead. <laughs> and, uh, I thought that was quite funny, but Danny took it pretty well and... Yeah, pulled his head in and things turned around. Yeah, well, funny you say that because that's one of the episodes he did is about all the mishaps he's had in a machine and how he's the man with nine lives and hopefully many, many more. Um, Yeah. We've said that's it, the number that you've had, that's it, no more, no more. So in Danny's episode he also mentioned a story about how what it was like mustering cattle and trying to get them to yard up. Well, yeah, if it's, a, if it's the same day, I'm thinking of, and I can remember it quite clearly, it was at F Board Yard with a very large group of steers that were destined for Queensland. We had the movement testaments. There's actually over 7,000 in the mob. It was the massive, it's the biggest yard in the cattle I've ever seen in my life. I think the day was when uh, the cattle wouldn't go into the F Board Yard gates. It was an old CSR yard, and they had a lot of trouble feeding in there. The gate was very narrow, and... I'd never go near the lead, you know, whenever I'd worked in the Territory, always got yelled at, you know, jackaroo bass or whatever. And this day they just weren't moving. I could just see them milling around there and I thought, shit, if they come back, they're going to blow the fences, whatever. So I went up there in the car, I was in the motor car, thinking there might have been, you know, a death out of snake in the gateway, which is enough to block cattle, you know. I've seen it a few times in that white powdery dust. That'd be either. enough to block me. Yeah, yeah. And uh, anyhow, there was nothing there and I just I just swerved in at them and, you know, just to fan the lead in. And as they went and I turned around to face the others head on, they started feeding better and better and better. The more I drove down at them head on, the quicker they were feeding in the yard, you know, like hundreds and hundreds at a time and staying in there more importantly, not turning around, coming back out. Yeah, at the same time, I could see the manager was trying to call me on the radio only to abuse me to get out of the lead, but it was actually working, so it stayed there. So whether Danny's talking about that same day, but I know every animal that was in that laneway went in that yard, not one of them run back. That's amazing. And can I ask, what is a CSR yard? Uh, CSR yard was built out of, uh, they got that name, they were built out of the uh, railway line sleepers, steel railway line oh. sleepers and railway line posts and CSR had owned a few properties up here and they, it was their design. So they ended up with the name CSR yard, a bit like the Sherwin yard. You might have heard of the Sherwin yeah, yard. Yeah, yeah. Well, yes, yeah, Sherwin got his name labelled to his type of yards, which were one of the better design yards at that time anyway. Um, but most of the yards on, on Eva, Beetle and Mungroom were Sherwin yards, but that particular yard at F4 was a CSR yard. Like you said, you had a lot of area to play with. I guess it's kind of like the ultimate playground. Thousands, hundreds of thousands, probably millions of acres, cattle, an intense work program, heaps of mustering, big mobs as well, Like not like being in, you know, you said it was much smaller in channel country. Mm-hmm. That I'm, you know, you wouldn't have had the time to be able to do 
to, to, to ride through your cattle and kind of look them all over like you were under an immense time pressure. What was it like? Well, I guess time set the standard. You know, we knew what we had to do at the start of the year. You never knew when the wet was going to come in and uh, you're always trying, I remember that, you're always trying to get ahead of your own program. You know, if you could be a couple of days ahead or a day ahead, you, you were feeling pretty good. But, you know, shit happens, things break down, people don't show up, things go wrong. And, and, and then that's the challenge is to get back on track. So the, the biggest thing was working to that time frame, you know, um, big, massive days, you know, many days you're gone at four in the morning, you wouldn't get to bed till 10, 11 at night. And you do that day in, day out. I remember contracting hepatitis there and yeah, running off the road, uh, going out to the yards to help the boys and, nearly hitting a tree in the car, you know, just that down, but I had to keep going where most people that get hepatitis have got six, eight weeks off. And I remember the health clinic driving out early one morning, about six o'clock, seven o'clock in the morning, really cold morning to give me a needle in the bum and for the hepatitis thing I had. And yeah, oh, it was just a horrific pain. It was the biggest needle. And I think she just drove it in there harder <laughs> than she needed to. And my ass was a bit colder than it needed to be, and uh, I never forget that. Like I said, I only remember the really bad things and the really yeah. good things, and all the stuff in between seems to go by the by. Oh, that is an image I did not think I was going to get today, but thank you for that, Wayne. Yeah. But you obviously did a pretty good job because it wasn't that long until you got promoted. And so this uh, you, this underlying goal you've got of, of going up the chain started to, you know, you, you got to take another step. Yeah, I, I think looking back now, um, didn't realise at the time the, 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 the way I got it, there's more qualified people than me out there, you know, more deserving. But I always kept my mouth shut, you know, like uh, when a manager – or one of my superiors or bosses asked me to do something, I never questioned it. In fact, I said to one one day, um, I said, look, I'll, I'll walk cattle to the moon and back if you want me to, just show me the way, you know, because he's asked me to do things that seem like impossible, but I'd never say no or you can't do it or question them or, or get into a, a conflicting situation with them. So I think that was the looking back now, even though I, I didn't have any people skills, I think that side of me being respectful of the people I work for, regardless of how horrible they are at times, um, is what probably got me there earlier than I actually deserved to be there by way of qualifications or experience. Uh, when I got promoted and transferred, I, I got a junior manager's position at Mullaloo. Mullaloo was probably one of their highest performing places, their smallest place, but very easy to run, very safe, had a lot of water, didn't have to drive far, it was a very rough block, but yeah, and it was also a great place, you know, to be, I mean, there was a lot of water there, you could go fishing and catching, you know, yabbies or whatever, and uh, a lot of scenery, hills and trees, it was totally different to the Barclay, it was a blessing. I know when we've spoken about this before, when we were preparing for this episode, and you were telling me about Mullaloo, I remember thinking it sounded like a good, I guess, kind of training block for a manager, like a good first, you know, like there's enough to sink your teeth into, but you're not going to get in over your head. 
Absolutely. It's both, actually. It's not just a good training block for a young manager. It's also a good retirement block. You know, if you want to slide out of the industry into a nice place that's still close to town and it's easy to run, we'll more lose the place. But at the same time, it's, uh, it's a good place to teach a young bloke. And you were there for four years? Correct. But this is – so you'd already been at EVA for two years with – so with Hatesbury. You ended up being with Hatesbury for 18 years. Correct. Which is huge. And that was when it was under the reign of Janet Holmes Accord. That's correct. Yeah. So I guess wh- how common was it to have, I guess, the big bosses back in those days be women? Absolutely unheard of, you know, uh, especially in that industry you might see a a woman as a big boss in a bank or some law firm or something like that in the cities. But running a big show like that was a huge show that um, what Hayesbury had back in the early days. Yeah, and the only way she could do it is have a few good people under her. And that's one thing she did and and she trusted in and uh, they trusted in her. Did you get to spend any time with Janet or was she kind of a very, you know, hands-off head office up in a high-rise kind of boss? No, um, Janet was quite the opposite, actually. Um, we'd get to see her at least two times a year, sometimes three times a year in the early days when they were struggling financially because, you know, her husband had died and he was the brains behind the money-making side of it. Yeah, so Janet was uh, left with a huge debt and all these properties. and But, um, yeah, we'd see her quite a regular basis, um, We'd have conferences where we'd, you know, we'd go down to Perth and spend some time down there doing training courses as well and catching up with her. But, um, yeah, I always look forward to when Janet came around. She's a bit different to a lot of bosses I've had in the past. She'd insist on wanting to know everyone's name when she got off the plane before she went down to the station and uh, asked me who, who, who'd been there last year that she'd remember and all those sorts of things and... So sometimes we'd spend 20 minutes, half an hour at the airstrip where I picked her up from before I'd take her down to the station so that she was absolutely sure she knew everyone's name to the point everyone that ever worked in Haysbury got a, a personal birthday card from her every year. I remember a time there we were uh, driving her and her uh, chief executive officer and financial officer around and she's seen some guys branding some wieners at the yards and she insisted on staying there for the whole day while I drove the CEO and the CFO around to look at the rest of the property, and I come back and she's covered in dust and blood and been branding wieners and just had a swag of a time. That's the sort of person she was. She wanted to get to know the business. She sounds like an absolute legend. She was, yeah. Well, Janet, hopefully you listen to this episode and you agree to come on and do one of your own because, (laughs) yeah, I just I love the stories you tell about it. That sounds... I guess thinking of other people today and how many CEOs would you see, whether they're men or women, leaving their corporate head office, you know, and coming in and like getting in the yards and doing that. Yeah. And I I get there could be a a case made for it that like, you know, that's not their job. That's why they've got people there to do it. But I think when you do engage in that, those kind of activities, it does give you a different understanding of the business. Absolutely. I mean, it was a very macho era back then and I never imagined myself working for a woman. They just weren't found in stock camps or, you know, managing places, let alone running an outfit like that. 
but I'd have to say she's probably the greatest boss I've ever had, without a doubt. What made her stand out from all the other bosses? Just the fact that, you know, she came into a business she knew nothing about. She genuinely got involved, hands-on, and trying to get to know it. Yeah, you know, she made a lot of great changes. Everyone enjoyed working for her to the point you'd think you'd work for her for nothing. You know what I mean? Like you really rode for the brand, for the want of a better quote. But, you know, to the point uh, she showed up one day, it was actually at Mooraloo, and she asked where my wife Rachel was. And I said, well, um, Rachel's working down at the Top Springs Hotel, 70 kilometres away. And she said, why is she doing that? And I said, well, you know, we want to get ahead in life. We're paying a house off. We've got two kids. And she said, well, I'm going to do something about that. Next thing, she's gone back to Perth and uh, she's got all the managers' wives on a wage, which is unheard of in the industry. And, you know, a lot of people wouldn't realise, but Janet pioneered that off her own bat and uh, give those wives identity. Yeah, because they were doing all the work. Admin work, relief cooking, you know, shifting sprinklers, mowing, they were doing everything. You know, my wife, she was out in the stock camp castrating calves and filling in when someone was sick, like, and they weren't being recognised for it. So, and at the same time, I think, I think she brought a bit of femino into the industry. You know, it was too macho, uh, too ripped hair bust. So, yeah, I, I, whether she knows or not, I think she, she did a lot of great things for the industry that people followed. Again, I guess I, I'd speak to this having come into the industry so much later on, but, you know, I've only ever known there to be managers, wives or partners and, and there's a whole different range of roles they hold and titles they have, but and often to most often to be a paid position. So I, I guess I'd never really thought about what it was like beforehand. And so to hear the story of how that came about and, you know, like you said, she didn't have to do that. No. You know, she could have been like, oh, oh, that's all right. Good for you, Rachel, 140-kilometre commute to work to, you know, round trip to go be a barmaid when, yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, but, no, it's, it's just turning points um, – you know, cornerstones in my career and that's one of the things I remembered that, yeah, she made a significant change that people followed. You know, to the point now, it was like back then, oh, who's the manager of, of Lejeune? You'd go, you know, so-and-so, where now it's, uh, oh, it's it's him and her, you know, like yeah. they're, they're both recognised, just not recognised just for the male side of the management team. And I've seen that change, you know. Everyone always mentions both people now, where before it was just the manager. What were some of the other changes that she instigated? Well, she really changed uh, the way she, – she, she encouraged a lot of uh, people training, especially with head stockmans and managers, um, you know, sent us away to courses to improve our people skills. And she told me, she said, Wayne, you know, one day you're doing a great job here. Um, you just need a few more people skills. So she, she left me a, a book by Dale Carnegie. And I still remember, I've read it twice on how to win friends and influence people. And I learned so much out of that book about myself and about other people, you know, just how they tick. And, you know, just ways you can talk to them to change the way they think and be a better employee. 
Yeah, um, yeah, she 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 done a lot of wonderful things. There is also a bit of a funny yarn that I'll get you to share if that's all right about um, I guess the level of trust that she had in her staff and how she knew you very well, so that when there were times that you know there might may have been some red flags raised, she she knew you well enough to know what was actually going on. Absolutely. Um. And, yeah, it's those sorts of things you don't forget, but there was a time there we were selling cattle. Uh, we were actually at Mooloo and we were selling cattle and two agents need to use the phone. So they've driven back to the house from the water bag yards and as we're walking up to the house, there's a big long concrete pathway and to the left of that there's a Hills Horse clothesline and I had my two boys, which were very young back then, um, I'd imagined um, they would have been five, four, five-year-old, maybe six, I don't know. And I had uh, Brody, my eldest son, tied to one side of the hill's hoist with a rope halter that we use on the horses and not tied behind his back so he couldn't undo it. And then Daniel, the youngest son, he was tied 180 degrees opposite to him so they couldn't fight with one another or undo one another. And anyhow, as we're walking up to the big house... Um, I'm getting to the front door and I looked around to see where these agents were and I see him there pointing and looking at these kids tied up to the clothesline and I never thought anything more of it. Anyhow, um, they've gone and made the phone calls and I see him staring at them as they walked out because Rachel was down in the kitchen making bread or something. And uh, anyhow, that next morning I got a phone call. Apparently it got back to the general manager and it got back to the Perth office and Got a phone call and Janet was very concerned about uh, the fact that we had these kids tied up and she told me how she found out and I told her why. I said, you know, we live beside a big turkey's nest right beside the house within 20, 30 metres. And I said, we're, they can't swim. They hadn't been to swim school yet or anything like that. I said, we're just that fearful and drowning. You know, I said, I'd just rather tie them up and have people uh, chuck off at me and then rather than have dead kids. And she said, well, she said, um, how much is it going to cost to child-proof that turkey's nest fence? And I give her a figure and she said, go and do it. Yeah, she's very understanding and things like that. Yeah, she also said, you know, whatever it takes to get those kids to teach them to swim, she said, you do it, get it done. So um, I think they, they went into swim school that year uh, in Catherine through school there, um, which was a good thing. Yeah, and I was just, uh, you know, if something like that happened today, you'd end up in jail if you tied your kids up on the clothesline. It's just how times have changed. Yeah, but, I mean, on the one hand, I understand why the eldest guys did it, and I guess I would hope that if somebody saw something that concerned them today that they would do the same thing. Absolutely. Um, but on the other hand, yeah, it's like, you know, it's not like you were leaving out them out there with no water and shade. You know, you wouldn't even do that to your dogs. Like you, and like you said, it's so they wouldn't go off and wander off and potentially drown. But from, I just, the sound of Janet to be the kind of person that sits on the airstrip trying to remember all the previous, you know, staff's, staff members' names so that she can go back and greet them by name, sending hand signed birthday cards to each person in the company, which, you know, there would have been a fair few back then as well. And then, you know, someone's come to her with this concern about your kids and her solution is like, well, whatever it costs, let's fix it, let's make this safe. Because you can't 
I guess you could think, well, well, why wasn't it already safe? But you don't, you know, you don't know what you don't know and you can't be on top of everything. So someone comes to you with an issue and instead of going, well, Wayne, rah, 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 she's gone, okay, cool, let's fix it. What a, I, I want to go work for Janet now. Yeah. No, she was, I'm very uh, sad. She was a great inspiration and she did more for the industry than, you know, she'd, she'd ever know. Looking back now at the time, we didn't think about it. I look back now and I think, well, that's that's been a change because of Janet. And it, it says a lot also that you ended up spending 18 years with Heightsbury or Heights. Okay, here we go. Heightsbury or Heightsbury? How are you supposed to say it? Well, let's be factual about it. High is H-I as in high and hay yeah. as in hey, hey, it's Saturday. Yeah. It's H-E-Y. So okay. I've always stuck with Haysbury. Okay. Yeah, I'm pretty that's sure that's how, how I perceive I, it. Yeah. I've had this conversation a few times over the last few years and I'm pretty sure even on the podcast because I've heard people call it Heightsbury and I'm like, but it's Haysbury. But then sometimes, you know, words don't sound like they look like they should sound. So, exactly. all right, guys, we've got it here on the record. It's Haysbury. Haysbury from me. Unless we get a phone call from like Paul Holmes Court going, it's high spring. Correction. <laughs> Paul, if you're listening, please clarify for us. So you, you did your time, I guess, kind of cutting your teeth as a junior manager at Moolaloo, mm. which also I'm just thinking you've gone from Eva Downs, the world's shortest, most simplest name of Eva, to Moolaloo. Yeah, so- one cow, two toilets. <laughs> I never, oh, my God, that's, I'm, guys, you've heard it here. I don't, I've never heard that before. I'm sure other people have though. One cow, two toilets. That is the yeah. new name. And then you, you ventured over into the Kimberley to Flora yeah, Valley. That's correct. Flora Valley, Gordon Downs and Nicholson are all run from Flora. Yeah. So that's a pretty big step up from Woolaloo. It was and a very different one. You know, Woolaloo was a very safe place, very close to town. Then to go to Flora, you know, you had to be right on your waters there. It wasn't a lot of surface water and it was a long way from anywhere. Dirt road, three hundred k's of dirt road. Yeah, it was uh, it was different, but I really enjoyed it. Hence, I stayed there so long. I enjoyed the the quiet space down there. You know, you wouldn't have visitors popping in, and it was just your own little family and team of people, and it was just fantastic. You get through the work very quickly. When you finally got to that point of being a station manager, a fully fledged manager, was it everything you thought it would be? Um, no, uh, you know, you started doing more admin things, more paperwork, you know, less of the hands-on stuff, you know, initially, initially, and then I guess once you've uh, got your head around all that and got a bit organised, which took a couple of years, and th- that's when I really started enjoying being a manager, you know, and you tend to not delegate as much when you first become a manager, you want to make sure it's right, you want to keep your job and do be seen as doing a good job, so you sort of forget to delegate. Yeah, it just took a couple of years to fall in the groove and to the point, you know, where I can get back into my passion of horses and have that personal time with them and my family as well and get away and do a bit more fishing and those sorts of things just by being able to organise yourself. It sounds like you've kind of come through the the time of where you just head down, bum up, just running yourself ragged to now you're saying like, you know, you kind of hit manager, it's BTEC's gone, you've got more time for your family, horses, staff, getting away to camp drafts. Absolutely. Like you've, you've persisted and persisted through some really trying yeah. times, well, you know, decades, and you've kind of hit that sweet spot now. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, I, you know, I had a few goals too. I, you know, I've always aspired to be a horseman and as much as I wanted to manage a big place and, yeah, I just hit that point, I guess, when I got to Flora. Here's me chance to bring all them things together. Yeah, it was a fantastic 12 years down there and then also, you know, learned how to fly an aeroplane and got a pilot's licence, you know, which sort of added to the satisfaction of managing the place more effectively, you know, from the air and getting to town and back, you know, so quickly and to different places. Yeah, it was just a fantastic time, those 12 years at Flora. Did you ever aspire to have a pilot's licence before? No, no, I've uh, and I didn't then. Um, it was just a, an opportunistic thing. I inherited the job with a plane and no pilot. And so I put a pilot on and he just happened to be an instructor. He's a great guy. I still talk to him today. And, um, yeah, one day after he was there for about six months, he said, Wayne, I'm not always going to be here. He said, um, I'll teach you how to fly. And I said, oh, I've got to go into town and, you know, I'm too busy. And he said, no, no, I'm an instructor. He said, I'll, I'll teach you. You can do all the training here on the place. And so I did, yeah. Yeah, it happened very quickly. I remember when I was, uh, I had to do uh, a cross country as part of my training for my license and, you know, my solo. Uh, they call it cross country. So you go to three points like a triangle. And I left Flora and I had to go to Turkey Creek, Kununurra, back to Flora Valley. And he had a big HF handheld radio and I was to call him 30 mile out or something and I was late. I wasn't on time because, you know, with flying, time and distance is of the essence and we didn't have GPS back then. It was back in the 97 it was. So it was all done on time and distance and, and that's the way you navigated as well. So when I wasn't at that point where I had to give an inbound call, he started to panic and what had happened, I was that nervous. I boarded my track and landed on the Duncan Highway to have a pee because... I was nervous, you know, it was my first <laughs> solo flight and so that cost me. Then the plane didn't want to start, oh, a bit no. flooded, you know, as they do when they're hot. So I, I probably lost 20 minutes, 15, 20 minutes because I had to circle around, find a place where it wasn't too rocky to land on the road and make sure there's no signs or trees to smack the wing into because that wouldn't have looked good. And, uh, yeah, he gave me a big serve <laughs> when I got back. <laughs> Don't you... I thought you were supposed to pee in a bottle or something. Well, yeah, I would have spilt if I was that nervous. It was a bit safe for me getting out, I think. But, yeah, that was a, a bit of a funny day. Seeing as you did get to fly around Flora, can you describe the country to us? Because you would have had a unique perspective from being up in the sky. The, the country was predominantly Downs-type country. On Flora Valley, probably was the best country. It actually had a bit of stone in it, obviously a lot more minerals. And then the further you went south towards the desert, the more open it became on Gordon Downs, the less stone in it and the less productive it was. It was still good country. And then we had the Sturt Creek system. Um, you know, there was blue bush and other herbs and stuff that grew through there, which was good. And then we had Nicholson, and Nicholson was predominantly all basalt. And, uh, yeah, probably some of the best paddocks on Nicholson were equivalent to Mullaloo. Very, very good basalt country. How do you learn about 
different types of country when you've come from the territory. I know you said some of it is similar to Mullaloo, but you spent all that time in the Barclay and Channel Country as well. And you're there, you've gone there as manager. So who's there to kind of teach you about that country or how do you learn about it? Well, you know, there's um, usually or always one or two old followers left there when you go to a new place like that. So you can get a lot of local knowledge off them about the country type and how it works. And the rest is basically experiment, you know, and getting experience from that. You know, for instance, like Mullaloo Nicholson, uh, with its heavy basalt country, it, it doesn't tolerate burning. And for some reason, you never see a lot of lightning strikes there. It's, it's a funny thing, so there must be something in that. Where the downs-type country, the heavier black soil country, it needs burning, you know, to refresh that up. And um, there was even some areas there that actually had like a little cancer in the Mitchell grass plants. It was like a coral that grew on the eastern side and it sent the cattle blind. And the, they were losing five or 600 head a year until I got there. And when I identified that area, I just put a match in the whole lot. And scientists come back from Kununurra the following year and couldn't find a trace of it, yet they'd been monitoring it for four or five years. And uh, they used to call it the black soil blindness. Oh my gosh, I've never heard of that. Neither have I. I knew they had the problem there when I went there, but once I identified the area it lived in and I burnt it, we never had the problem again. But some of the old fellows there told me they'd seen it back in the 50s and they reckon it's just areas that was that failed to get a burn. There was a lot of lightning down there. So, you know, a lot of the times if you didn't put the fire out, a lot of the country got burnt. But, yeah, I used to periodically burn it, you know, every three years, just have new sections that I'd save to burn. And then as well as the red country where all the turpentine was, you'd have to burn that every couple of years as well, otherwise it'd just get too thick. So did you say it was a, a type of coral that was growing? Correct. Yeah, it was a um, it was like a a coral, and it only grew on the eastern side of the plant where the sun come up, um, which was odd, and uh, never grew much higher than about four or five inches from the ground. Like that heavy stem part of the plant never grew out in the leaves, so you had to pull the foliage back to actually get down and see it. And if the cattle licked that with their tongue or got a bit in their system, digestive system, it send them blind. Did it grow on all types of plants or just one particular species? No, just Mitchell grass, yeah. Wow, and how did you figure out that that's what it was? Well, I was told about it when I went there and so I was shown what it looked like and identified it and then after driving around for several weeks because we were there late in the year, I realised it was only in one area and it looked like an area with the amount of foliage under it that hadn't been burnt for a very, very long time, you know, maybe... 10, 15 years, I don't know. So I made it my business before it got too wet. You know, storms were coming in, a bit of lightning, and uh, I made sure I burnt the whole lot of it, just as an experiment more than anything. And, yeah, it cleaned it all up. So you didn't have any, any blindness? No. Because, I mean, you spent another 12 or 14 years out Correct. there, so that, that problem kind of went away. Yeah, and I haven't heard of it since. And you said before as well that the Ag Department, there were some scientists that had been monitoring it. Is that right? Correct. How funny. I'm just thinking like four or five years of monitoring this thing, you just come in, light a match, problem solved. Like <laughs> There's nothing left for them to monitor now. <laughs> and how else did flora differ to the other country that you'd worked on, you know, and, and how does that also impact the way you have to run your cattle and your people? 
Yeah, well, we come from Mooloo, and like I said earlier, Mooloo is very easy to run, very safe. Um, Flora Valley, you know, it wasn't hard to run or anything, but uh, you had much bigger area to cover, although you could cover it fairly quickly with good roads where Mooloo was really rough. Uh, pretty much the waters were bores, so you had to be on the ball there, check them every couple of days. Aeroplane made that very easy. And a lot of pipelines, you know, that were subject to breaking. So you could pick up those green patches where the, you know, pipelines were broken from the air, where on the ground are very difficult to find because you couldn't see through the dead grass to see the little green patches. So so it was different in that way. And it was also very remote. There's like 300 kilometres of dirt road past Kalkaringi, you know, through the Buntine, the Duncan. And then the other way, um, west, it was 110 k's, pretty rough road through the Halls Creek Hills before you hit the bitumen, then, you know, another 350 k's up to Kununurra. So, yeah, it was very remote, but I sort of enjoyed it. Did you have more people working there than at Moolaloo? Yes, we did. Um, at Moolaloo, I think we, we had about 14, 15 people, like through the thick of the year. Uh, when I got to... Um, Flora Valley, uh, there's something like 40 on the books there. We had a big uh, early weaning research and development program underway. Uh, it was about halfway through, so there was a lot of people involved in that. And, yeah, there was, you know, two stock camps and, and whatnot, and we, we gradually pruned that when the R&D finished. We pruned things back to probably about 16 people, which was just right. What was the main difference between being a junior manager at Mullaloo and a senior manager at Flora Valley? Well, pretty much the senior side of it was basically, you know, you demonstrated you'd been through your junior period and got some experience and you should or be ready for a place as big as Flora, Nicholson and Gordon Downs. You know, it was like twice as many cattle, two and a half times the amount of cattle and much bigger areas, much more responsibility. So. I guess the height of the responsibility was, was probably the big thing. And also having the R&D there, which is, you know, a mob of investors invested a lot of money in infrastructure at Flora Valley um, with this early weaning program, which was weaning the calves down to 60 kilos, which, you know, some of those crossbred calves are only getting one or two or three sucks and they're all ripped off mum. And even the guy who was running running the uh, R&D, uh, the early weaning program, we used to call him One Suck. Is that Steve Petty? That would be correct. <laughs> oh, and I'm going to be able to look at you the same again now, Steve. Hopefully you can come on the on the show and share your own stories and maybe you've got a nickname <laughs> for Wayne then. <laughs> they probably did. Plenty of them. And that wasn't the only R&D that took place at, while you are at Flora Valley. Tell us about the, the Spain trial. The vets in Kununurra, uh, I think Christian Jubb was the one who was leading it back then. They approached us about doing a spaying trial. They had five different types of spaying that they wanted to um, to trial. Um, it was over a two-year period. So, um, yeah, you know, there was um, the new Willis method, which was the one that came out to be the best, and it just took off from there. Where And, and I think Flora Valley... There might have been a place in Queensland, but it was the first place the Willis method had ever been trialled or invented. There could have been a place in Charter Stowers or Queensland somewhere at the same time, but yeah, Flora Valley was one of the very first places the Willis method uh, took off. What was it like for you being involved with those two trials? 
Um, I enjoyed the spraying one because, you know, they pretty much come there for a, a day or two and they were gone, the cattle went out and then they got them back in three months later and they were handy, you know, we had a good fenced up paddock, safe paddock. It was only like a hundred head, it might have been 20 of each or something like that or a few more. So that was quite easy and quite interesting, you know, and um, so I gave it my full support. Um, with the early weaning program, yeah, it sort of, it tend to get in the way of management a bit and uh, at first, but looking back now, I've, I've learned so much out of it. Not that I'd want to wean calves down to 60 kilos. I think maybe 80 kilos is a better line if you're in a drought or something like that. The infrastructure, the investors left there was a great design. The type of infrastructure I think they've put on a lot of places now because it works so well, not just with the weaners, but your sale cattle. So yeah, I learned a lot from it over the four year period. It was, it was a great thing. So what was the infrastructure that they put on the place? Uh, there were a number of, uh, six, eight square kilometre paddocks, um, with a laneway up the middle. And, uh, you know, every paddock had a water medication, you know, going to the trough so that they made sure the, the animals in there were getting the right amount of urea and minerals, etc. And, um, rather than, you know, just having lick blocks or, or, um, loose mix out there and having no shy feeders or inconsistency, everything, and it worked very quickly, like within 48 hours you were getting a result with the rumen. So that was a great learning curve and, um, yeah, just having all those paddocks uh, to put different wieners in and get them quiet, you know, feed them and they come up to you every day just made a huge difference when you let them go. With the amount of time that you spend at Flora Valley, there's got to be some special spots that you've got there like you've happy places that you'd go to oh there is some nice areas there um there's one massive paddock there was about 750 square k's the paddock and uh alice ball and uh you know there's a few aboriginal paintings there but you just uh always had a nice feeling when you drove through there or walk cattle through there it was just these sort of eerie sort of hills very pretty a lot of white ghost gums and um, usually a bit of water in the creek. So, yeah, it was uh, it was my favourite area. Speaking of, what were the musters like at Flora? Because we had an aeroplane there, we utilised it um, with the mustering. Um, and that was the other thing. When I went there, you know, I was told by the general manager the place wasn't making any money and it could be a big risk to go there because, you know, if nothing happens in a couple of years, they might sell it. You know, they were still in a program of selling properties, trying to get out of debt. So I had a fairly big incentive to um, to cut costs and make some more profit. So I utilised that aeroplane and, um, you know, it saved us a good couple hundred thousand, which was a lot of money back then, 200-something thousand dollars a year. So the musters would basically, the plane goes out at daylight, a couple of bikes, and, you know, make sure everything come into the watering points, and then the horses would pick them up, usually eight people on horses. And uh, the bikes just kept feeding them in from the from the aeroplane. Um, there were some rougher paddocks up in Nicholson, um, and we might have used, you know, in the beginning, sort of seventy or eighty helicopter hours there. But the rest of the place was done with the aeroplane. Did you ever stop and reflect back on your time working at Macarthur River or down in Channel Country, and think about all the different types of mustering you'd done? And now that you were here and you were the boss, and you're able to kind of I guess, take a little bit from, you know, what you've learned along the way in all the different places and 
kind of design your own thing? Absolutely. Um, yeah, that previous experience. And, and sometimes you learn the things not to do um, and you don't want to go back to it because they weren't productive. Um, but certainly, yeah, you put your own style together and, you know, the place next door might be a little bit different to us and uh, the place on the other side next door might even be different again, you know, where some people just use all helicopter or, or uh, trap, you know, if their place is suitable for trapping. And uh, a fair bit of Gordon Downs um, was certainly suitable for trapping, which we did at times. Yeah. Do you, do you have any thoughts on trapping, I guess, in terms of the impact on cattle handling versus mustering them? Uh, no. I think at the end of the day, I never really get emotionally involved in styles. I think it's a business and, you know, it happens to be cattle and rangelands and horses and things like that. So I think a lot of people do a certain thing a certain way because they're emotionally attached to that style because that's the way Dad did it or whatever. But I always tried to do things that, um, you know, that made money, you know, what is, and that's the bottom line. You're there as a manager to make money. But at the same time, look after the rangeland and, uh you know, have a reputation for nice, quiet cattle as well. So it's always a compromise, but the bottom line is you've got to make money. Speaking of having a reputation, I un- <laughs> you look a bit worried there, Tori. It's a nice line of questioning coming up. It's all right. I understand that one of your biggest achievements, if not the biggest achievement from your time at Flora Valley, is training up to five or more people that would go on to be within the management kind of um, level of the company. Yeah, no, that's quite satisfying uh, thinking back. And it's not like really I trained them, you know, that I gave them a, a perfect environment to, to be as good as they can be. I think uh, a lot of places I'd seen, the uh, manager was always in the yards involved with the head stockman and, you know, I could never see anyone going ahead. I've, I'd been in certain situations myself growing up through my career and I always said when I become a manager um, you know obviously Flora Valley I was a little bit involved at first trying to get to know the business and the area Um, you know let that 2IC whether he's a head stockman overseer assistant manager um, and always had two people usually had an assistant manager and a leading hand or a head stockman a leading hand wherever I was um, you know just so that that head stockman could get away and and do his paperwork and then the, the, the lead and hand or whoever that was under him was always getting exposure to responsibility. So if anything happened to your 2IC, well, you always had a plan B. And uh, and it worked very well, um, you know, because it was an environment where those 2ICs could get a lot of experience and a reputation out of it very quickly. You know, any person that had spent a head stockman's job or assistant manager's job at Flora, having running all the three places, such a big area, such diverse country, um, you know, had a real good stepping stone into management. And um, so the grass was always greener over the fence, you know, just like myself. Those people wanted to make a career out of it. And hence, uh, you know, a lot of them got pinched or white-handed, as we called it then, to to more money and, you know, bigger and better things. And and you can't deny him for it, you know. So when that happens, uh, the guy under him steps straight up and then you've got to identify another leading hand. What do you look for in people when you're trying to fill those roles? 
Well, um, not so much their horse or cattle skills. Um, they're important or mechanical skills, um, but mainly their attitude, you know, that they, they can uh, talk to men and men respect them. And, uh, you know, they've got an attitude where they can get along in a team very well and um, and they're organised more than anything. Um, you know, I've had some great two ICs uh, that that were good at one thing and not so good at the other and then I've had one or two that have been good at everything. You know, they're real standouts. But, um, yeah, it's, it's more the people side of it. You know, they've got to be able to handle men. The last thing you want is all your stock camp pulling out because he's speaking to them the wrong way even though he's very skillful himself so it's really important uh, how they speak to the men how they organize them so with that would you then hire from within your camp or promote from within your camp rather than employ someone from the outside because i mean i guess if so if you're just taking applications coming in how do you gauge that about someone without meeting them and working with them absolutely no they're always come from within you know, you constantly identify them, you know, just the way they uh, work through the yards when they haven't got responsibility. You know, when you give someone responsibility, uh, you really find out who they are. And I've made a couple of mistakes over the years. You know, they can turn into monsters with a bit of authority. And, you know, some people just aren't genetically designed to handle authority. And, and that's you just got to be honest about it. And they could be very good at everything else, you know. And um, I think that's the most important thing. A lot of people, well, employers, you know, tend to give people a, a an elevated role like a head stockman or a, or a position of responsibility and, and it's because they're very good horsemen and very good cattlemen and very good at fixing things. But they're hopeless with people and they never last it. So the people side of it's the most important. Yeah, I've often had that conversation with people that, you know, it doesn't matter how skillful you are in the yards or on a muster, when you step up into those roles and I, I don't know, kind of like what you said, like with becoming a manager and you become more in the admin side of things, but any step up, I guess, is the more you have to deal with people rather than animals. So, Yes, your skills, um, you know, develop very quickly because if you're going to stay in that role, or even escalate up the ladder, you've just got to continually improve your people skills. You mentioned that Janet had given you a book, How to is it Make Friends and Influence People. Is that what it was called? Yeah, it was a book by Dale Carnegie, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Yeah. yeah. So would you do something like that with your the people that you were kind of trying to bring up into leadership positions? Would you give them books or send them away to training? Uh, certainly sent them away to training and, um, you know, there was always a lot of literature, literature there on the station about those types of things that they could read. But I just found in the end that you, you were better off identifying someone that naturally worked, you know, with people and had those natural qualities. And a lot of the time they didn't even know they had them, you know, until you pointed out to them, like, you know, you're a born leader. And um, and then you put them in that job and they usually thrive, you know, and then they get really excited and then want to make a career out of it. But ne- not even thinking that they were uh, born leaders, but they are. You can just see it in them. When you look back to your time at Flora Valley, what stands out to you the most? 
Well, yeah, it's always the people side of things that comes to mind first, you know, those guys coming there to work and, and uh, you know, going on to bigger and better things. That's always pleasing in the back of your mind and then having someone to step straight up, you know, and then having to identify someone else to replace them. So that was always ongoing every couple of years, which was great. You know, you can't have them there forever. I always say that if you can get two years out of someone, it's great. And the whole time we were there, we had very good staff retention. We, we we didn't have to go replacing whole camps of people every year or anything like that. We always had a good core few coming back every year that knew the place. So that really stood out. And, um, yeah, just a, a beautiful workplace, you know, with the things I like to do. Like, you know, we're on the doorstep to, a, a you know, a lot of good camp drafts and it was a good place to to you know make a camp horse like train a horse had good ground not like Mooloo it was just full of rock couldn't gallop anywhere really you know being on the doorstep of the Kimberley as well and I used to love fishing so the boys were at a ripe age where they loved it and um, very enthusiastic about it every time we went so yeah we'd you know take a week off instead of going to the Catherine show we'd go to places like Clumbaroo or Cape Domit really picture seek places and go just camp out and go fishing living off the ocean for a week. That sounds very different to anywhere I've heard of before, like for how they spend their time off. That sounds pretty cool. Yeah, well, everyone had the option, you know. We used to write a program. That was one thing I was always proud of. I'd write a program for 90 days, um, which not a lot of people can do and stick to it. And in that, you know, they could see the camp drafts that we were having time off for, and it was their choice if they wanted to go or not. And, you know, the fishing trip, it was always programmed. You know, I think we used to take 10 days off at Catherine Showtime. That was the end of the first round. So, yeah, I was always very proud of being able to stick to a program, especially when people come there and say, oh, that's impossible when they see 90 days of work rode out. And, oh, you know, I've been somewhere else and they change it all the time. We never did. We stuck to it. You know, if I had to pull the kids out of school or, or the governess and Rachel and the Borman and the grader driver to go and truck some cattle that just turned up on the doorstep I had to do. I never, never ever disrupted the stock camp from their core duties of mustering and weaning the breeders. Wow. Ever. <laughs> Won't disturb the stock camp, will disturb the kids at school. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, you know, if someone gets sick, well, Rachel went out there plenty of times, you know, castrating Brandon for days on end. Whatever it takes to keep the show on the road, I, I never made an excuse to to change anything on our program, no matter what popped up. Did you find yourself at some point relaxing into the role? I guess how do you you find the line between kind of relaxing and you know I don't know I don't I'm trying to think of another way to describe it versus being I guess too relaxed, and that's when things start to slip. Which obviously that didn't happen when you were there. But how do you kind of find that line of not being so wound up all the time, being like work, 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 thinking about work versus going too far the other direction? Well, yeah, it's it's a confidence thing, I guess. You know, the, the longer you're there, the more confident you are about things, you know, but, you know, at the same time, familiarity breeds contempt too, you know, if you get a bit too familiar with something, a bit blasé, well, then, you know, you could end up perishing a mob of cattle or forgetting about something that's really important. So, yeah, but I think just through time, being on one place for so long, and it probably took three or four years, where you could be a a little bit blasé but still be confident that things are right at the same time. 
After 12 years at Flora Valley, you made the decision to leave and come into town for a career change. By that time, you'd spent the better part of two or more decades on cattle stations. What were some of the changes you'd seen, I guess, the good and the bad? The biggest changes in the industry was probably, um, you know, occupational health and safety. I'm not saying it's got the stages now where it's ridiculous, um, but I, I think it needs a check. It we, we, we needed that to happen, but like all things, it always ends up at the other end too far and lacks the balance it needs. That's probably one of the biggest changes and, and probably the the introduction of... Um, yeah, Brahman genetics, you know, going from full-on short-on herds and places to, to boss indicus cattle. It's been huge. Yeah, just the, 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 the development of these properties now, the amount of watering points and laneways, you know, and look, they're all great things. Um, they've all improved productivity and work satisfaction, um, but they've probably been the major things. Were there any changes you saw that you weren't happy with, that you kind of wish they'd go back to the way they were or had been previously? Yeah, I think when occupational health and safety come in, they controlled our work hours too much and that was affecting our lifestyle a bit, you know, because we'd, we'd sit down on the 1st of March and write a program and plan out the whole year and uh, people like that, you know, especially your employees. They want to know what's going on, you know. Uh, are we branding calves today or are we going mustering? And, and so we'd work those guys, you know, sometimes for 21 days straight and they were big days. But at the end of that, you know, they had something to look forward to. They might have been going to the Halls Creek Camp Draft for four days off or something, whatever, or fishing, whatever. But it was all mapped out for them. So when that come in... I just had to change the way I did things because, you know, we only had to work, we had to work them so many hours a day and if we did, well, then we had to give them two days off if we overworked them or or whatever and so you had to write your programs around that, which which was a bit disrupting to the way I'd like to run a place. Mm. And, of course, I guess you kind of came in in the thick of BTEC and then by the time you left managing you were well out on the other side. Yeah, yeah. It um, like it was good to see BTEC go and then focus on, you know, more animal productivity and the rangelands, you know, looking after your country. You know, then we started doing cattle working skills and horsework, horsemanship skills and shoeing skills and people training courses and first aid courses, you know, none of that we had time for in the past. So the industry become more enjoyable. When it was a goal that you'd had for so long and you'd you'd finally gotten there, was it a hard decision to make to leave that career and pursue another one? Um, not really. It probably shocked my wife a bit and the people above me in Hayesbury and that, but you know, I always had a goal. I I said to Rachel, I said, you know, when we got married, because your wife, they always want to know what you want to do, what are we doing, where are we going, and, you know, Rachel's no different. And I said, you know, if we do 20 years, that'll get the kids into a out of school into a trade because we had to pay to put them through boarding school and I'll build you a really nice house somewhere, you know, and this is the first year we got married. 
and I did. That was always part of the plan. So we'd bought a block in Catherine here, five and a half thousand acres, and it was just virgin land, blank canvas. So we come to town and, uh, yeah, started that. That was the next chapter of the life. That's a pretty good place to leave off in this episode then. So I'll ask you a similar question to what I did in your first episode, and that is looking back on this chapter of your life, what would you say is the major lesson that you learned? I think the major lesson was, you know, is, is, is have goals and don't quit. There was a a lot of instance there, you know, I, I could have quit. I had, you know, offers to, to do other things, to leave that career and, um, you know, stick to your goals and um, and even when times get tough, just don't quit, just tomorrow's a different day. And, um, yeah, to come out of that and achieve your goal, um, you know, becoming a senior manager and, and then having the opportunity to... Um, come to town and build a nice house and develop a property, which was also part of the the goal, was only ever achieved because we never quit. 